0: Hello, and thank you for being a member of the History of World War II podcast, Episode 41, The Abyss. At 5 p.m. on August 1, 1944, as the streets were packed with those ending their working day, Warsaw erupted with a hailstorm of bullets and death. And it was, all of it, aimed at the Germans and their underlings, no matter their location whether they had guards, were themselves armed, or had ever been involved in the brutal oppression of the capital's people. All that mattered was that they were one of them. Just below the sounds of gunshots and explosions, of last gasps or screams of vengeance, came the sound of church bells clanging again throughout the city. The home army had at last risen up. Within seconds, dozens of Germans were dead, caught unawares. Within minutes, the number had risen into the hundreds. The first to die were any Germans on the streets who had been stalked by home army soldiers, readying for the appointed time. Others to die right away were those located in police stations or Nazi administration offices, as grenades, or other explosives were hurled in on them, or men with guns dashed in and opened fire on everything and everyone. And even though it was the rush hour throughout the city, within seconds, every civilian not involved in the coordinated assault had vanished from the streets. Despite the odds of so massive an attack, Approximately 40,000 Home Army individuals took part in the opening assault. From being leaked, the assault went off without a hitch. The Germans were dazed by the assault, but so too were the members of the ZOB. Well, not all of them. Just the leader Zuckerman and his lieutenants, Zavia, Simha, and Mark Edelman. But the Bundist Baruch Spiegel, knew. He was in on the fighting and just assumed his leader, knew what was coming. But Isaac did not, nor did the insignificantly numbered and untrusted Communist People's Party. Operation Tempest, in all its preparations, was kept from them all. From the Communists, because the Home Army did not trust them. But from the ZOB, because, quite frankly, there weren't enough of them to matter. Oh, other Jews had helped, hundreds of them, Outside of the ZOB, whether fighting directly or helping with their preparation, they had participated, hoping for a better tomorrow. Yet the main reason the communists were kept out was straightforward, but in the end, it would not alter history—the history that was coming to Poland after the Nazis were gone. As Zawia later stated, militarily, it was against the Germans; politically. It was against the Soviet Union. And that was it, in a nutshell. The Home Army knew their only chance of survival, of reclaiming their country, was to have the Germans gone, and a government, a Polish government, established by the time the Reds came rolling in. And of that day, no one doubted. Not even the Germans. But catching up fast, something Zuckerman seemed fated to do most times, He knew it was time to join the fight. He had missed the ghetto uprising. He wasn't about to miss this. And who's to say he was doing this for himself, his wounded pride, or the ZOB? Probably for all the reasons. But who should his small group of warriors join? The Home Army or the People's Army? And though they were few, they had weapons and experience in guerrilla warfare. Surely they would be appreciated. Surely not. By the next day, August 2nd, the city had de-evolved into sections of either German-held, Home Army-held, or the People's Party-held territory, which required Zuckerman to play the dangerous game of hopscotch as he navigated sections to get to the Home Army's headquarters. Without ceremony, he offered up himself and his soldiers. They weren't told no, but they weren't told yes, either. They weren't told anything. But Isaac had his answer. So, hopscotching his way to the building that held the big red flag on the Prudential Life Insurance Building, the tallest building in the capital, Zuckerman made his repeated offer to the communists. The communists, and you have to give them credit, had a better response than no. Or silence? The reply was, it would be too great a historical responsibility to send the few survivors of the ghetto uprising back to war. We have to keep them in a museum to protect them. Operation Tempest continued. Of the 40,000 Home Army soldiers that participated in the attack at 5 a.m. on August 1st, 2,000 were already dead. By the second day. While it's true that 50 tanks had been destroyed, the Germans had only lost about 500 soldiers. Not good kicking out the occupiers. Math. What's more, the Germans wisely held onto the western part of Warsaw, so they could bring in reinforcements or, if all else failed, had secured their escape route. Before too long, the ZOB found out that the main reason the Home Army did not tip them off about Operation Tempest, or take them in now, was that they had joined with the National Armed Forces, a far-right anti-Semitic group. The Home Army had the people, but not enough weapons for all of them. Or this could have been the end of the Germans in Poland. Yet the National Armed Forces, with just less than 100,000 recruits, had more weapons than people. It was a politically and military necessity. The ZOB was out. Which left the minute People's Party, which took them in due to their relative few numbers. So, on august third of forty four, Isaac Zavia, Simha Mark Edelman and about twelve other survivors of the ghetto uprising became the third platoon of the People's Army 2nd Brigade. And within an hour, this newest platoon was put on duty on Bridge Street. Located in Old Town, just east of the northern part of the ghetto, but still west of the Vistula River, Bridge Street was on the path to the river, and consequently, an area the Soviets would have to come through to make their way to Berlin. And because of this, just 100 yards away from where the ZOB hunkered down in a trench, the Germans had machine gun nests and several Tiger II tanks, half dug in to the earth. These vehicles weighed 68 tons and had armor twice as thick as American Sherman tanks. So the People's Army did not even waste shells in attacking them. Fortunately, the tanks were being saved for bigger prey, or so it seemed. The ZOB's first shift lasted for 20 hours as they watched the Germans, but obsessed over the Tiger IIs and hoping their turrets continued to point over their heads. And the fighting continued. Streets and sections of Warsaw traded hands, sometimes daily. Yet, ironically, the Bridge Street Trench was one of the safer places to be. Because Zuckerman's Jews were just 100 yards away from the Tiger IIs, whose only job was to watch out for Russian tanks, the Luftwaffe didn't risk bombing them. German artillery didn't risk shelling them. Those tanks were precious because of their location, their main duty, and because, quite frankly, they were outnumbered by the Russian tanks, 7 to 1. And finally, no one wanted to leave the relative safety of their trench to charge anyone else's fortified position. But the Russians did not come, had not yet come, which was strange, because after surging through the Ukraine and through most of Poland, they were just now outside the view of the capital. Yet, they did not come. Officially, Marshal Rokhovsky offered up that his 800,000 battle-hardened troops were tired. They needed a break. Their supply lines were much too thin, and therefore vulnerable. They just needed a rest. That's one version. Another is that Stalin purposefully halted his forces, knowing that the home army was still formidable, and still anti-communist. And the longer he waited, the greater the possibility that the Nazis and Polish forces would go on fighting and killing each other. In essence, Stalin was letting the Nazis, with their hatred of the Poles, clean house, so the Communists would have that much easier of a time in occupying and running Warsaw. Whatever the truth, and for what it's worth, I subscribe to the second view, the Russians' non presence ruined the Home Army's plans. They had only planned on a short campaign. They would surprise and massacre as many Germans as possible right before the Russians showed up. This would encourage the weakened Germans to abandon Warsaw, giving the Poles time to set up their own government. But it didn't happen that way. What's more, SS General Jürgen Strupp was now back in Berlin torturing Wehrmacht officers, trying to find those who no longer wanted to fight for their leader. His most effective method was hanging men up with piano wire. But Strupp's leader was not to be outdone. Heydrich Himmler told his beloved leader that as Warsaw defied Germany's savior, it deserved to disappear from the face of the earth, its people along with it. So orders were given out to the Nazi leaders in Warsaw In the midst of the city fighting, while waiting for the Russians to come across the Vistula, Warsaw, meaning every citizen and every building, was to be destroyed, and it would commence on August 5th. On that day, 50,000 additional German SS soldiers fell on Warsaw, yet the tip of the spear, which was aimed at every civilian in the city, was comprised of numerous nationalities that the SS had recruited during their time in the Soviet Union. And these men were barely human. Of their thousands, there were Cossacks, Azerbaijani, Oriental Muslims, Cossacks, and Ukrainians. Of their number were also many murderers and rapists that had been released from German jails for this express mission. Backing up these monsters were regular German troops who were pulled off the main line, as it seemed the Russians were halting their advance, for now. Fortunately for Zuckerman, this wave of murdering rampage started in the Wola and Akchova neighborhoods, on the other side of Warsaw, away from their trench. Unfortunately for the civilians, the main targets, the SS Special Forces, all but ignored the home army positions. On that first day, a Saturday, the SS killed about 20,000 civilians. Within a few more days, and one can only assume these civilians got better at hiding, somewhere between another 35,000 and 50,000 civilians had been butchered. But eventually, the home army positions were engaged. But those fighters had run out of bullets in engaging the Germans who were supposed to have fled the city by now, because the Russians were supposed to come charging in. Soon there was hand-to-hand fighting between the sadists of the SS hirelings and those keeping an eye on the Nazis. Ever east did this storm of rape and murder proceed, which lay waste to the organized sections within the city, already carved up between the Germans, the Home Army, and the People's Army. Soon, Polish units were a mixture of Jews and Gentiles, Communists and Home Army personnel, as they attempted to survive this wave of mayhem. On the 19th of August, the SS offensive reached the ZOB station, and as the Germans came closer, the Tiger II tanks came to life. The Jewish fighters had nothing to oppose the metal beasts, so got as low as they could in their trench. On came the tanks. But as they came up to the trenches, the tanks simply kept going, overrunning holes, knocking down barricades. It soon became clear to the Jewish fighters and the others of the Communist Party that the tanks were stationing themselves closer to the Vistula River and thus cutting off any retreat for the Duggan rebels. The panzers had no desire to commence firing, as it may get the attention of the Russian tanks, now over a thousand in number, that could be seen by the home guard lookouts with their binoculars. An armor wall now behind the Polish, the SS madmen, came on. The ZOB and everyone else were pushed back, though killing when they could, but mostly hiding and running. Zuckerman was determined that his group at least, would not become one of the now 100,000 deaths since August 1st. And on cue, it started raining bullets and other supplies, as the RAF dropped two million rounds as close to the resistors as they could. Yet by then, the Germans had regained control of most of the city, which meant many of the dropped boxes were kept out of the defenders' hands. By now, most of the city had been destroyed. What between bombers flying over every day, artillery shells landing throughout, flamethrowers setting buildings alight, which created, literally, flames of dust devils that kept the fires going and spreading. But nothing made the rebels feel as hopeless as Himmler's latest toy. It was one of the largest howitzers ever made. It had to remain on its platform, pulled by a train, Due to its weight, its seven-foot-long shells could obliterate an entire block. Yet, ironically, with the murderous SS bearing down, the ZOB were safe from this Goliath. As for the Luftwaffe, they were flying over Warsaw every thirty minutes, trying to make good Himmler's pledge of wrecking every building within the capital. But at night, the RAF would come back and drop what they could. Grenades, Philip Moore cigarettes, spam, and Sten guns. Of these precious drops, Zuckerman and Zavia managed to get one. Their people, once again, were now able to defend themselves. Which was needed, because as the Panzers closed off any escape, on came ten SS infantry battalions from the west. Yet now, so resupplied, the ZOB and other rebels were able to slow down the Germans as the fighting became close-quartered and any thought of mercy was long since gone. But the people of Zuckerman and the fighters of the People's Party weren't just protecting themselves. Behind them were about a 130,000 civilians. And though they were out of food and water, looked to the rough-and-ready men and women with guns to keep the hordes of sadists back. But then Zuckerman found himself in charge of all 400 fighters as a bomb killed the entire command staff of the People's Army. Zuckerman had been in this hopeless situation before. There was only one thing for it. They had to leave. They had to find a way out and make for a section of Warsaw that was still held by the home army. By the end of August of forty-four, the territory the rebel fighters held equaled the size of five football fields, European, not the US kind. And it was getting smaller. They had to leave now. And there was only one way, the sewers. Simo Rodhauser was the selected front man, given his experience and told to plot out a course that would get them to the Jolie-Board section of town. There, at the Woodrow-Wilson Square, they could hold up and join a larger home army garrison. Yet, as Sima got underway with a team of men all older than himself, he came upon booby traps and tripwires within and just above the sewers. Working as quickly as possible, some of the traps were disarmed, the trip wires neutralized, and guide wire and chalk signs were put up. Finally, the ZOB got their turn at the sewers on September 1st, and after 12 hours of crawling, backtracking due to new traps, and losing a few friends to exhaustion, they rose out onto the street at Woodrow Wilson Square. Besides themselves, only about 5,200 civilians made the trek behind them. The rest were captured, tortured, and killed during the next few days. By the second week of September, there were now at least 150,000 Poles who had been murdered, mostly civilians. And since the beginning of the war, there were now 700,000 deaths in Warsaw alone. And still the Russians sat there, still resting. Britain and the U.S. then nudged their ally, reminding them that Radio Moscow had been the one to encourage the Poles to rise up. This Moscow denied in calm diplomatic language. Also by now, the Polish civilians blamed their problems on the home army. If they had not risen up, then Himmler would not be trying to kill every single one of them. Yet they knew they couldn't surrender that would only end one way. It must be said that of the regular German forces of the Wehrmacht, stomachs were turning as they witnessed the atrocities, and more of the men, trapped by duty, began to drink more, to forget what they had seen, hoping not to dream of what went before them during the day. But for some, a line had been more than crossed, and they were going to do something about it. The Wehrmacht had always held the SS in disdain, but were truly sickened by what the SS-indoctrinated assorted nationalities had done. Some of the regular officers started going into enemy territory and bringing out women and children. The SS taunted these men, who had the good sense to ignore them, and protected these fortunate individuals as best they could. Then, reacting to their disgust on another level, the leader of the worst group, General Kaminsky, of the Russian RONA brigade, was killed under curious circumstances. That was later proved to be done by the Germans. Yet it had been suspected as such at the time. That was it for Himmler. He knew he could not keep his word to his master. There were too many people about, too many witnesses and he knew it bothered many of his own men that, as so many Poles were being murdered, many had to be Christians. They couldn't all be Jews. So, a compromise was reached. Only all the men would be killed, not the women and children. Yet Warsaw was still to be wiped from the face of the earth. Now that the remnants of the ZOB were in the northern suburb of Jolibard, They spent their first few days, pleasantly so, wrapping their minds around their new surroundings. After surviving the ghetto, and then what they had just come from, through the sewers, this area was as close to what Warsaw had been before the war. Trees still lined the streets, and there were more houses standing than demolished. But what it came down to was simply, this northern section of Warsaw was not that important to the Germans. For now, the suburb was encircled, either by the German forces or the Vistula. The occupiers knew those of Jolibor were not going anywhere. But as word spread of this comparative paradise, other Varsovians started showing up, and some, though not many, were Jews. Zuckerman started up his underground welfare program again, Yet there was little food to buy, no matter what money he had. But then, just as Zuckerman had finished begging from every organization he knew and getting the same reply, there was little to hand, much less to share. On September 18th of 44, the U.S. Army Air Corps, in a formation of 110 B-17 Flying Fortresses, dropped supplies after taking off from Poltava Airfield in the central Ukraine. And as the B-17s were protected by 72 Mustangs, only one of the bombers was lost. This deliverance was only made possible due to U.S. Ambassador Avril Harriman. Harriman was one of the richest men in the United States and had extended business dealings in Poland before the war. He knew of its vital location. Without being too blunt, the Ambassador knew that Stalin was playing his own post-war game and brought up time and again the staggering amounts of aid the U.S. had given to the USSR. Stalin acquiesced to this one flight. Unfortunately, as most of Warsaw was back in German hands, they received most of the drops. Yet Zuckerman and Zavia managed to beat the occupiers to one of the large boxes, and for their pains brought back Smith and Wesson revolvers, a first aid kit, cigarettes, but most importantly, anti-tank guns. Yet no food. Future flights were to be carried out by the RAF, but those pilots immediately complained of the losses they sustained in attempting to help the Poles. Yet it seems that most of the ground fire came from the eastern side of the Vistula, when pressed, Soviet officials admitted that perhaps there had been occasionally friendly fire accidents, which proved to Stalin's men that their thousands of tanks, thousands of anti-aircraft batteries, and millions of men could not protect the RAF sorties. So, it was suggested for Moscow, with no room for argument, that the Polish Home Army, the Jews, and the Polish civilians would only receive supplies from the Soviet Union from now on.